So one quick note before we get started today, I have been remiss in my Patreon duties. So um, I'm supposed to be giving a shout out to my $6 um, patrons, uh, my $6 patron, um, since I have one. So shout out to Dustin Hansen. Thanks so much for supporting this podcast. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to, how, uh, let's see, you can go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA. Um, I don't really ever have any plans of like uh, making a lot of money off this podcast. And I do kind of want to keep it free from the influence of any, any transactional necessities. So I really rely on your generosity to keep this project sustainable, to hopefully improve the production quality of this project at some point. So if you'd like to support How to Be an Artist, if you like what you're hearing uh, in this project, um, go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA. Thanks. How to Be an Artist, Step 6, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Part 1, featuring Damien Dayton. So um, I guess the first thing I'm, I'm kind of interested in talking about with you is, is your own personal like professional path, because you've had quite a few twists and turns to end up um, where you are now. And I wonder what the, I'm just kind of interested, I don't know necessarily if I want to hear like a full um, like narrative of, of your professional life, you know? Um, but I don't know, maybe talk just a little bit about kind of some of, some of the difficulties you encountered and, and how, how you kind of found yourself to where you are now, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I, do you want me to focus kind of on the aesthetic? Is the pod, is the podcast going or you're setting me up to start the podcast? Oh, we're, we're, we can, we probably will have started by now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah. No, welcome to the blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're not, it's, it'll, it'll be kind of like an in media rest type of start, I think. Okay. With a lot of these. So, um, yeah. So we, we, we were actually talking about the, this weekend and I was talking about this. I, I don't know. I think, I think art kind of creeps into your conversation, my conversations constantly. And I think, especially with mm -hmm. our family, um, I think our parents kind of saw me as more, as this, the natural, uh, scientist, uh, or, or the mathematician in the family, you know, I did math and I did science really well. Uh, but everybody liked to, to draw, um, well, I say everybody, but it, Cameron, you and I, especially, you know, recreation, watching TV or sitting at the table, we were drawing. Um, but yeah. I think art came alive, you know, the visual arts came alive on our first trip, family, our family trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, and washing, walking through the, natural, uh, the National Gallery. And, you know, which is like walking So you see that as kind of one of your really formative, like, experiences with art. Yeah. I, you know, we... Uh, Mom, our, our mom had already surrounded us with good art, you know, there are arts or paintings that I didn't recognize. And then later in life, and she, she never taught us about them, but then we would kind of discover, <laughs> oh, that's Camille Corot. Oh, that's a James J. Audubon yeah. piece. You know, that's a, that's a Fragonard. Oh, there's a frag. We have a Fragonard in our house. I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even know who that was. And maybe it was just, but we didn't have, you know, we didn't have generic hotel art in our house. There wasn't any art that was mm -hmm. like. Oh, this is a nice decorative piece. And I think as we were in our formative years, you know, as we hit adolescence, mom would notice that we would discover an artist like a James C. Christensen, and then that would get added to the walls, you know. But that was mostly because yeah, we, that's true. That, that we had that excitement for it. And I think some of it was Cameron's, you know, so 
I think we always had the urge to create. You know, mom would do things like spread out shaving cream on the dinner table and and we'd make roller coasters and then it would turn into drawing. And she always said that she'd buy us coloring books and we would turn to the front and last page didn't have drawings on them and we'd draw on those and, and then throw them away <laughs> because he said like, well, all the other pages have drawings on them and we didn't want to want to color on those. But I think... I definitely feel like this trip to the trip to Washington D.C. like this this spark woke up in me, and some of that I think Cameron gets some of the credit for because he was kind of burning from from Mr. Bill's class about art history, and so he could name each piece as we went by, or at least the artist, and tell me a little story about each. And I was already just loving seeing. I don't know. I, I feel like a deeply spiritual connection to art and I, I the way that some people are moved by music emotionally I feel like mm -hmm. I had that experience when you stand in front of the original work and it does something to you and I remember just you really mean that specifically with like painting yes right? definitely with painting but sometimes it, and sculpture um yeah you know I remember later studying Rothko and being like I don't get it just squares and then standing in front yeah. of in in San Francisco in the Rothko room and having my breath taken away and it's like the scale and the scope. And I think, you know, this is partially religious for me, but I think there's a part of us that never dies. And true art, the artist is manifesting that eternal part of them in their work. Um, mm -hmm. And that you connect with that. And that's not always whether it's a quote unquote good or bad painting, um, but it's just like the rawness and, and that vulnerability or that authenticity. I don't know. These, these all seem, sound like catchphrases of the last 10 years but I think like that intrinsic part of the person that has existed before they did and will exist that is undeniably them is manifest mm. in the work and and mm -hmm. and I feel like there's you know Eliot's Ode to the Grecian Urn is you know uh, beauty is truth and truth is beauty and what I, I'm going to misquote but you know what more do you need to know but I, th I think that's true I think that there's there's an eternal truth and beauty that we can sometimes see. And so I remember that trip mm. specifically to Washington, D.C., and really being awoken to that as we walked through. It's like, you know, it's like walking through two years of classes as you go from room to room and really just being shook by several artists like Monet um, and Van Gogh and Rembrandt and, um, uh, you know, Cameron really had a connection to Paul Clay and, and John Singer Sargent. Uh -huh. I definitely uh, resonated with, with some of his work. And then also immediately having a strong opinion about some artists that people loved that I just didn't. You know, I still hate Renoir and I have strong opinions about <laughs> Picasso, you know. But I also yeah. knew that I had this urge to create. And I remember later then in college sitting in, an, you know, your whatever art class was required and I was just drawing a hand and, and, you know, just drawing my own hand, which I think every doodler has done before and just thinking like, man, this is really great. And not, not in the sense of like, I got to show everybody, but like, uh -huh. I really love what I'm making right now. And it really feels mm -hmm. beautiful to me. And there's something divine in that, like the creator in love with what they've created. And I don't care what anybody else says about this. Cause I love this drawing. Mm -hmm. And in knowing that there's this part of my soul that's kind of scratched by the creative process, that this itch that's, that's scratched that way. And if I don't, you know, it withers and dies a little bit. But because I was on this scientific track, I was pre-med from the beginning. 
I felt kind of guilty taking the art classes. You know, I didn't get to take any art classes until into high school. I think you took some in junior high, but I didn't take any until I was in yeah. high school. And then I would kind of sneak them in college. I had a pretty, you know, I was a humanities major and a zoology minor and a chemistry minor, which I didn't finish the minor. I was one class away from finishing that minor. And and I had an art, but I, I snuck in an art history emphasis and a Spanish literature uh, focus, yet we had to choose a language of focus. And... You know, I think it's interesting thinking back to um, college because we both like were, were roommates during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I were to think back on that, it very much like your artistic experiences stand out much more clearly to me than any other other academic experiences. Like I, if you were to tell me, oh, I took this in this class, I have zero memory of that. But I remember very distinctly um, how interested and engaged you were. Like I think about things like international cinema. What a yeah. cool thing that was you know, BYU's international cinema program and how much fun, like we had discovering these like, uh, um, different international films. Yeah. Um, Oh, totally. And that was, that was the part of my college experience that was really, really rich. And I felt like, you know, academically the other classes were somewhat challenging, but I didn't have a whole lot of homework, but I didn't kind of think about them and ponder about them and think about them when you're waking up or in the shower or that adds a lot to your life. Uh, You know, although I'd say I, I had, Studying the human body, I think, was really uh, revelatory to me. Just the intricacies at the cellular level to the muscular level. And, of course, there was intersections with art. And I took my freshman year, I found I was disappointed when I found out you weren't required to take human anatomy as pre-med because Mm. you're going to take the anatomy classes in medical school. And so I took it anyway because the drawing classes in – the drawing classes in – at BYU, you're working with clothed mm-hmm. models, yeah. you know, and and that was kind of uh, disappointing. Sounds like makes like me sound a little, little pervy. <laughs> no, probably not to artists, yeah. but you know, to Mormon boys, you know, a little bit. But I, I wanted to study musculature, and I kind of thought, well, this is the way that Michelangelo yeah. did it, so this is great, you know. And and even just in our textbooks, we had much better examples of the musculature broken down. And I got to work, and, and you know, and, and so that was that was really uh, a key part of, of that. But you know, then school went on. You know, my most of my um, academic practices. Uh, apologize, my just kicked my mic. That's okay. Out. Take a second, put that back together. Yeah. Uh, most of my college experience was hours in chemistry labs, biology labs, zoology labs, uh, genetics classes, chemistry classes. You know, I think organic chemistry was one of the more challenging classes that I took. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, but I just, it felt very route. Nothing ever felt like a, an awakening. It was just always like, oh yeah, this is what has to be done to get an A in this class. And you do that and you get the A and that's yeah. great. Um, and then slowly I was working on films during that period. I think it wasn't until you entered the film program that I started working in films mm-hmm. um, t- with you together, I think, on Garden of Hesperides, or, you know, the little science fiction film mm-hmm. we made, uh, you made it on 8mm. But I remember just really getting excited about that and what that could be. And I loved when you'd ask my opinion on <laughs> scripts and getting involved. And then uh, Travis, my good friend, was at the University of Utah 
And we were talking about great documentaries we love. I'm like, hey, let's make a documentary. And he's like, I can raise like $4,000. like, $4,000. We can make a whole movie <laughs> off of that. And we couldn't believe we could get somebody to pay us to do it. And we started making this demolition derby documentary on our weekends, which had nothing to do with my academic pursuits. I just really wanted to make this thing. And we spent two years going like every in the week in the summer every weekend to derbies and following four drivers and I remember I snuck in a mail truck which is a federal offense apparently um, to film one of our drivers who was a, a mailman um, and I followed him on his route and uh, you know I, mostly I was stalking him but he's like hey you know you, you don't have to walk all the way back to your car you've been following me for miles and uh, he was a really nice guy uh, but, you know, I, I loved the process. And then I think because of your connections and you were making stuff, um, I would get involved and do some, you know, I did art direction for a few other people's student films while we mm-hmm. were there. Um, but that's also how we met, you know, Jared and some of the other, uh, some of the other film students in your program, which are, you know, are still professional connections of mine. So anyway, jump forward a couple of years. I did, uh, I missed my MCAT applications the first year I qualified for it. And then, and I was like, why did I put that <laughs> off for so long? And I hated the application And MCAT, process. that's like, that's a test then, you have to take to qualify to go to medical school, right? Yeah. Some people say it's like one of the hardest standardized tests you'll ever take because it co- covers everything you've just done in your undergraduate that's science or, I mean, there's verbal reasoning as well, but it's all of the maths and science and physics and chemistry that you studied in college. And it goes, you know, it's an eight hour test that you do and one sitting, I think there's a little break and, you know, but yeah, it's the, it's the pre-med. So I put it off the first year and the second year I was like, okay, I'm going to take light classes and just study for it in base. And I got a, several books and I got flashcards and basically studied like the week before <laughs> the test. Um, I just put it off that long and I got really involved, like for the first time got invited to do no, Cameron went and did improv. He did. He got invited to audition for this new improv group that was coming yeah. to town. And he asked if I'd come and support him and didn't have enough people to show up for the first auditions. And so I got on stage with him and then, you know, just like, oh, this is really fun. And they invited me back and Cameron decided he didn't want to do it. It was like too embarrassing or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I did that and I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be preparing for the MCAT right now. And um, anyway, so I took the MCAT. Um, is a testament of, of how stress, stressful it is for a lot. You know, it's one of the major things that determines what schools you can get into. I brought a roll of Tums Ugh. to the test. And at, at the beginning of the test, I set out the roll of Tums. It's like, I, you know, I know I'm going to get nervous. So I just put one out, thought this will calm me down, and I took one. In the next 15 minutes, I had given away the entire roll to just different people. <laughs> hey, get one of those, you know. So my first medical act was a drug dealer, you know, dealing Tums. Uh, at Tums. Yeah, doing Tums, which technically is not a medicine, um, but we can get in that later. Um, you know, so I did that. I did fairly well. You know, I would say I was very competitive. I had a great GPA. Uh, I applied or I began the application process. I, so I worked for a year in the hospital mm. and about a year in the Huntsman Cancer Institute doing research. Absolutely loved the hospital. Um, and after college, I, I also took about a month to backpack with a friend through Europe. And basically just, it was a tour of, we basically backpacked to different art museums. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we didn't do England, which is, you know, significant, but we spent a lot of time in Paris and uh, Barcelona and Madrid. 
and um, Florence and Rome. I think that's where we spent the majority of our time, uh, you know, and seeing art and architecture and sculpture in those areas. And anyway, so then I came back and sold cars for a year to pay or for summer to pay for the trip. And, and you know, and the, so then I did a year in the hospital, which I abs- absolutely loved working in the operating room. And then I w- worked at doing research as I was filling out my applications. So not only did I put it off the MCAT for a year, then I put off sending in my applications Did you applications actually apply to and, some medical schools? Like, I don't remember this part of it. Did you actually go through the process? Yeah. So applying? well, yeah. So, I, I missed the deadline my first year to apply, but your MCATs are good for a few uh-huh. years. Um, and so, yeah, the next year I was like, why is this, why do I keep putting this <laughs> off? And so while I'm doing research and I just realized, ugh, laboratory work I did not love. I liked helping people yeah. in the hospital, you know, and I think even our family, we got in a pretty major accident as a family and you and I were both in the car behind and, and so we were helping the family. And I think that woke me up to like, Hey, I am good in an emergency mm-hmm. and I'm good at responding and, and used what little training I had of that experience. And, and as I was applying, so it, you, when you take the MCAT, you decide, uh, you kind of apply and build out like a base application. Um, there's, and, and you decide which schools you'll send your MCAT scores to, um, and you pay per school that they sent to. So it's like a two phase application. So you send, your applications in and based on your scores and your GPA and your preliminary application, you're then invited to fill out a more specific application for those schools based on, you know, if you qualify. And I qualified for, for all the schools that I, that I had targeted. I'm sure I'm. How many, how many schools did you apply for? Do you remember? Oh, I want to say like seven, seven to 10, Okay. you know? Um, and so I'm guessing the university of Utah was, was probably at the top of your list at that time. Um, actually I was really interested. I was really interested in going to Johns Hopkins, but that was like, that would have been hard to, I mean, that was a a stretch with my, in, in the U I would have been a a competitive candidate, but I wasn't like a slam dunk and like Johns Hopkins would, would have been like a long shot. So I was looking at like Johns Hopkins, um, Washington, George Washington, no Washington uh, medical school of Wisconsin, uh, gosh, this is, this was 20 years ago, so I don't remember all the schools. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, Tulane, um, yeah, it, but during those process, so while the, you had done this general application of all your qualifications for medical school, uh, before, t- prior to taking the MCAT for their individualized, you had to do essay writings. And I was like, I got this cause I loved writing, um, especially mm-hmm. essay writing. You know, I always felt that you and Cameron were better creative writers than I was, you know, as far as telling fanciful stories, but I really felt like essays, you know, making this emotional plea and telling an interesting story that has a, a point um, and a thesis that I developed through story. I, I really felt like I excelled at. And that in the, in the, in the um, application process, that was the hardest part for me that I just really, really struggled with it. And I'd always said, you know, you've got to write what you know, you got to write what you know, you know, and, and, and all these essays kind of came down to, why do you want to go to Johns Hopkins Medical School? Why do you want to go to Tulane, you know? And, you know, I'd start with a flowery things like, you know, I remember the first time I saw death, you know, or uh, I, I talked about uh, pulling, 
going to the ranch and pulling a, a live calf out of a mother and helping it, you know, when we were, I think I was eight, uh, on the ranch and we helped deliver, I don't know if you remember that, deliver a calf and talking about some of I remember that. Yeah. 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 Some of those experiences. And I, and I was like, these are good stories, but these, these essays, I just kept on rewriting them. I'm like, they, they just keep falling flat and they're not going anywhere. And I, it was something that I was made a spiritual pursuit out of. I was praying about and, and going to the LDS temple and, and communing in whatever ways I could, trying to find what my purpose was and just give me an answer and say what I should be doing and, and just felt like the heavens were silent on this issue. And then really it was a personal um, epiphany more than a revelation that was the epiphany was I can't tell you why I want to go to Johns Hopkins Medical School because I don't want to go, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to go. Yeah. And, and I was like, I can't, I can't write a good essay here because, you know, I can break down the reasons. And I was like, yeah, it's, you're looking at quarter of a million to $300,000 in debt for something I wasn't sure that I wanted to do. And the guys in my yeah. program that struggled maybe more in the chemistry class were much more passionate. Like I'm going to do this at what, whatever it takes. And I was like, I'm not, I was doing this cause I'm like, my dad doesn't, it looks like it's, he enjoys himself and he makes a good living and it's a clear path. You know, it's a hard path, but it's a clear path. And the artistic path was definitely a scarier, more dangerous one. But now was this, was this, was this kind of realization of kind of that you didn't want to, was this a pretty discreet moment or was it my sense of it? Remembering it, it seems like it was a much more drawn out oh, kind of painful uh, yeah. realization. Well, I would say I agonized a lot over what I should do and I didn't, you know, I was like, how come I don't, why don't I feel more of a passion to do this thing that I prepared my whole life to do? And is it mm -hmm. just because the applications are long and boring or is it because, and I, I felt like I needed like a spiritual push or I needed somebody, you know, I wanted lights from the heaven to say, this is your calling, you know, and, and yeah. I didn't get that the other way either. Right? It's not like I, you know. But I had a general sense of of this idea or, or a feeling that, hey, whatever you decide in life, you know, your your creator will support you in that if if you put your energy into it, you know. And I definitely mm -hmm. came to that conclusion as well. But I think that it was a discreet moment when I realized this is why I can't write a good essay because yeah. the premise is not true. And, yeah. and But I think that's informed everything I've written since then, even though – you know, I am a filthy compromised ad writer. I really don't, I cannot write an ad for something. I cannot write about a product, um, at least any good, unless I really believe what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm selling. You know, at any one time, I'm currently wearing four products from, from clients past and present. Um, and it, I've definitely noticed that about you, that when you work for a client, you're like, you're all in. You're like this. Yeah. yeah. Like you believe in the stuff that you're, you're writing about. Yeah. And, and it's one of our philosophies at creatively. It's like, love who you serve, serve who you love, you know? And mm -hmm. it's, and I think out of that love and diving in, you understand. And I, I think it also relates to empathy. You, you also have, you become their customer and you, I think in order to write good ads, you have to have such empathy for what the customer goes through. Uh, there's a competitor of ours that they insist that like, Hey, if you want to work with us, you have to send us free product. And I'm like, Oh, well, you've missed this great opportunity. Every time we consider working with a, cust a company, I go and buy the product because 
Yeah. You need to understand the first pain that a customer feels, which is, ooh, that's a lot of money. Is that going to be worth it? Because that's the that's the hill that you're going to have to get them to to go over, right? And yeah, and so there's only way. To- so was that help? Was that helpful when Annie was giving you feedback on on one of your products on oh, pricing? Oh, absolutely. And and the funny <laughs> the thing is, I had had that same thought about the product, and yeah. we kind of came yeah. into that client in a different way, and we had got some. Yeah, and, and it was partially because we had worked with two different competitors that had a similar product, but just wasn't mm-hmm. as good. And so when we stumbled on like, yeah. oh, these are way better, but we didn't think about that simple, you know. And so Annie's breakdown is very helpful. And I think we're going to be able to solve that in a, in a month or so. But yeah, oh, that's, cool. that's why I feel like the first step towards advertising is having like an extreme empathy for customers. And that's not like the sympathy, but like really understanding the emotions of the pain that they're feeling, why they need the product. And the friction they face when they meet the product, you know, because if you're doing your job right, they are the hero of your story. Not the company's not the hero of your story, you know. Yeah. The, the customer is, and you need to understand what they need to overcome to get it. Um, so anyway, jumping back in history, uh, I, this yeah. you can tell me if my my story is going too long, but I I basically decided well I'll take a year off before I apply yeah, for to medical school, and I'll just be a writer and I'll write short stories because I was kind of an, I had taken a bunch of short story classes and I was kind of in love with the form. And I mostly sat around and didn't write. I think I wrote 10 short stories and I'm still really proud of them. And I think no one, mm-hmm. I think maybe two people have read them. I gave a- Yeah, I've, ne- I've never I've never read your short story. Have I read any of your short stories? I don't know if you have. I mean, some of them are short shorts, um, like one yeah. paragraph or two. And I remember a couple that I kind of regret. One I gave, I wrote for a girl um, her birthday was on leap day or leap year, you know, leap day on February 29th. So it only came around every four years. And I, the premise was about these, these, these elves that come in February 28th every once a year and they build the day out, you know, and then they have to dis- disassemble it at the end of the day. And I was really proud of it. And I thought it was really cute and clever. And I gave it to her and all, you know, and quote unquote, all rights, you know, like you can welcome to publish this wherever you want. And I was thinking like this, because someday I'll be <laughs> worth a lot of money and you've got, you know, I'm giving you the rights to my story. You know, yeah. of course that didn't even turn into a relationship. Like she was just somebody that I yeah. really liked. And she reached out, connected with me on Facebook like eight months ago and I was like, hey, do you have mm-hmm. that neat story you wrote for me? Could you send me another copy of it? And I was like, no, <laughs> I gave you everything. You know. Um, <laughs> I already gave it to you. Yeah, I, I think I may have read one or two of my stories to you. I think there's one about laughing. Yeah. Um, it's like the eight modes of laughter of the something monastery yes. or something. Yeah, and, and the yeah. absinthe drinker. Also, a lot of them had titles based on art, works of art, too. Uh, and... I, I still I still actually keep them in a folder, and some were based on mm. our life. I have one about our dog, about. Um, it, I remember the story of of the secret um, neutering of our dog. Wasn't that one? Yeah, of them? yeah, and it was. Yeah, <laughs> it was about the the neutering. Of, yeah, and, and it was kind of about quiet conflict. I think, and I don't know. I was still kind yes. of proud. And then I looked up like the writer's marketplace and I got the like writer's marketplace for dummies and sent those out. And I, but honestly, I had not enough direction to really produce. I moved back into the parents' house after they'd moved to New York and while well, it was waiting to sell. Mm-hmm. 
and I just wasted my life during that period. Didn't do a whole mm. lot with it. And then during that period, my friend Travis, who had done, we'd been doing the documentaries, like, hey, I'm working for this company. Now, I had done some, a little bit of work for him when I just needed a little bit of work. I'll just compress this, but he was like, hey, I'm working for a company now, and we're producing a syndicated show, and the producers don't really know what they're doing, but you've been producing this documentary, and I think you have more experience than them. Why don't you come in for an interview? I'm like, I don't know about that. And I, he says, well, come and have lunch with me. And it turns out lunch with him, he had set up the interview. I didn't know I was interviewing for the mm. job, but he pulled me aside and said, this is an interview. I want you to be confident and tell them you know what you're doing. And they mm -hmm. set up a follow-up interview, and I had a kidney stone the night before the interview. And I was like, oh, geez. Wow. I'm like, why? I was like, why? And it was like this this existential dread. Like, what? you know, I was poor. I, didn't, I was unemployed. I'd been living off savings. And like, why this medical emergency? I finally have a job interview. And... Um, but the interesting thing is I was way underqualified for the job. And when I went in to meet with him, <laughs> he had had a kidney stone the year prior. And I just let it drop. I was like, I'm sorry. I look a little haggard. I was up all night. You know, I passed a kidney stone. I was like, you passed a kidney stone and came in for the interview. You're hired. Because, <laughs> like, you're willing to do what it takes to get the job done. You know, it's like this story. It yeah. sounds like a story from, like, the The 50s. kidney stone saved you. Yeah, yeah. It was like that was my foot in the door. And we didn't last very long at that company before we started bringing in our own clients and we didn't feel like they were taking care of them. So Travis and I started a production company uh, uh, and we had a great well, 14, 15 year run with that company and, and he's still running it and doing, wow. and doing well. Is that, was it really that long that you guys were working together? <laughs> yeah. It might've only been like 10 or 12 years. I, gosh, I'm thinking off the top of my head right now, but you know, during that period we did everything from episodic TV um, documentaries, mm -hmm. miniseries, a lot of commercials, a lot of things for web. And it was fantastic, but I was writing and tr sometimes directing and sometimes producing and sometimes gripping and sometimes doing everything. And I liked doing a little bit of everything, but I kind of felt like, hey, production is kind of becoming a commodity, you know, and uh, I realized this is not the path to create the type of art I want to, you know, I, 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 we, we originally got started like, hey, we'll do a little bit of this paid work and then we'll eventually make movies. And I realized that wasn't the path. And then I realized I'm, you know, so I left, I, you know, we left him. He could tell that I was like, hey, you don't want to run a produ production company. Like you like to write and you like to strategize and you like to market. And, and I really started getting a passion for advertising during that period. And so I left, and, and shortly after I did, you know, some consulting gigs, but ended up marketing a lot of independent, smaller films, largely, you know, mem you know, uh, movies for the Utah, you know, Mormon members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints market, and uh, yeah. which was really fun and, and and really insightful. Even though they weren't, not all of them were my favorite films. It was interesting about to, <laughs> to gain empathy though for audiences that were seeking something out of their films that they couldn't get from other films, you know? And, and yeah, and I, exactly. And I think that's, I think about that way in all art now is, is this is giving something to the world and who is looking and who needs this? Um, you know, I once, I once, I remember once you probably remember the LDS film festival, like that, uh, I'm sure it's probably still going Christian. We said, yeah, he sold uh, it, but festival. it still exists. Like, yeah. He sold. Okay. So there's like one of the first years, there was just a guy that was like a distributor and he kind of just made this point that just like, you know what? So during, during this time, I should just mention for people, 
that uh, just to get, provide some context, like right kind of when we were leaving school, there was this kind of boom of independent filmmaking in Utah that was, that was really directed towards the Mormon market. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, ex- it's, that's kind of continued in some form till now. Um, but he kind of made this point that like, if you're creating a movie, uh, you have to like you have to understand what you're competing against. Like you're competing against all these blockbusters, and you have to provide something for this local market that they can't get from going to that to the, the blockbusters. And that's that's like not an easy problem to solve. But I, I think there's a lot of local independent filmmakers that don't they don't really think about that. They have like here's this project I want to do, um, but sometimes they're they're not super marketable as 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 you have have kind of found out you know even though they're yes. interesting ideas however i would say that so you know that market definitely has taken a hit in the last 5 years but I, when mm-hmm. i got into you know when i was doing some consulting i just made this this point utah is unique in that it's probably the only state in the union that can make films for under a million dollars only for people of that state and yeah you can make films for only the people of that state, and you can make a living every two to three years doing that. You know, you, well, demo, demographically, it's it's completely it's completely different than any other any other state in the union. You look at the demographics as far as like percentage mm-hmm. of a state that is of one religion. Like nothing else holds a candle to Utah. I think the closest is like Rhode Island has like twenty five percent Catholic. Yeah. And Utah is something like eighty percent Mormon. Well, it's just completely different culturally. Yeah. Although, ironically, this this year actually is the first year that the the Mormon population has dropped below fifty percent. So now they okay. Are, that's actually probably more. Are, more. I think yeah. Utah County might be more eighty yeah. percent, but the state as a the whole state is, is, a is whole, around fifty percent, which is still way more than twenty five percent. Like demographically, and furthermore, with yeah. large families, they go to more movies per capita than any other state in the union. Uh, and okay. so one movie theater has largely doesn't have a monopoly, but they have 90% of the market share in Utah. So where you go anywhere else in the country, you'll see Regal, AMC, um, uh, Cinemark. Uh, I'm not sure how big Cinemark is, but, you know, you'll, there's some of those chains and they barely have a toehold in Utah because Larry H. Miller, which started out as a car dealership, um, has so many of the theater chains in, in Utah and, you know, and they play everything else, but they also do a really good job. They pay local filmmakers a larger percentage of the box office than the other. So they have really cultivated taking care of the locals and they have a, a Tuesday night that's the $5 night. And so families go, the theaters are busier on Tuesday than they are on the weekends here. Um, but yeah, mm. all the theaters are like, how do we break into this Utah market? Cause it's so, um, you know, productive, but the decline of DVD sales the formula for years was basically if you can make a little bit of money, if you can make your advertising and your production budget back in your box office, then you will live for years off of your DVD revenue, you know, mm. and that's, that's just all but that's disappeared. Gone. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's gone. So and I don't think I feel like I could do another podcast very good on deals that out of alone. Netflix nowadays either. Oh no. Like they're offering like $15,000 for, yeah. you know, um, but like during this period, I've had a lot of filmmaker friends come up to me and be like, well, what if we could make, you know, something like a Scorsese film that didn't, wasn't about, you know, it, we wouldn't have to make it for Mormons to be successful here. I'm like, no, you, you're totally wrong. You totally have to. Because with $200,000, like unless you have a brilliant idea um, yeah. and it's a, an incredible movie, 
you know, I can think of a few films that have done this, but are like, no, because you're trying to make an art film, which is a smaller genre, um, mm-hmm. you know, with less money for this group. And, and, and you're doing, you're not doing anything that Hollywood can't do way better. The best storytellers yeah, it's, it's in the like world. A subs- it's like a subset of a demographic, like a smaller segment of what's already a small, like, demographic, you know? Yeah. It's and and Hollywood has, you know, think about this. The, the, in the world, all the best filmmakers of any craft go to Hollywood, you know, and there's, there's some pockets outside, but everybody knows that's where you go if you want to be serious about it. So there are thousands of great DPs in Hollywood and thousands of great everything all looking for their break. And so, you know, and, you know, multiples of millions of dollars more to put into it. So you just have a much better chance of making something great out of there. And it looks completely different, you know, now, yeah. especially now when so much is coming to your home box, the only things that are really succeeding on the box office are giant. It either has to be about a Star Wars or an Avenger. You know? <laughs> and then every once in a while, there's a, there's a, there's a quiet, quote unquote, quiet movie that cost a mere 40 million to, you know, to yeah, that comes sure. across and does well. So, so get back to your story. Your art kind of complete, uh, complete the, the oh. hero's journey for us. Okay. Well, I don't know that it's complete. I just know that <laughs> you're I, still I, in the middle of it, but yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why art resonated with me is I've also de- dealt quite a bit since college with, with some level of depression. And I think mm-hmm. that also turns up kind of your emotional sensitivity meter and sometimes it turns it off. <laughs> um, yeah. But it does some interesting things with your emotions. And so I definitely have been on a, on a quest there as well. You know, so a professional quest. So after that, you know, I knew I didn't want to promote films forever. Those were all kind of consulting gigs. I'm like, hey, I can do that like for a few months every year, but that's not a full time gig. And as I, I got married and had a family, um, I sought for something more. But I really did love marketing, and so I kind of got into this this subset of marketing that's social, long form social media, funny funny videos. Most are funny. They don't have to be. Um, but these are essentially making five minute short films um, that extol the virtues of a product that I love, um, mm. you know, and we might make, uh, you know, 10 or 15 of the longer ones a year and a lot of really short ones in, in the process. Um, but now my focus is on strategy and concept and writing. And I found that by focusing on the writing and not, you know, I think you get out of school and you think, oh, I want to be kind of a writer director and everybody wants to be the director. turns out I, I don't really care for directing much. It's like way mm-hmm. too stressful and I can't make things great when I'm doing it. And, but I can make things great when it's just me and a pe- piece of paper. And if I was producing writing and directing, I was a much worse writer because I was thinking about the costs and I was coming up, oh, here's a great idea that'll save money. We can shoot it all in one location with one person. And that just creates boring work. Yeah. And, but I, so I think this is true of any art. I think a lot of artists feel like they have to be able to do everything. Mm. And they say, you know, well, I'm going to work on improving my weaknesses. And one of the things we just talk about around the office here a lot is the best way to improve your weaknesses is by focusing on your strengths. Um, Mm. You know, if you're great at drawing people doing karate, don't try to get better at drawing cars just draw really awesome guys doing karate because the car can be a blur in the background. Nobody cares that much. You know, I'm all for improving and filling out your artist subset. Um, But by improving things that you're really great at, you'll naturally get better at some of the things that you're weak at. 
But if you focus on your weakness, that's just, you're gonna, it's an exercise in frustration. Yeah. And, and that's really awakened. So professional, I've been doing, we've, I, I joined this company and, and kind of bought in as a equity partner and, um, it's called creatively I'm a little, I'll do my little pitch. Not, I, you know, not like I, I'm not selling myself to your audience, but that's who we are. Um, um, one of the, one of the things that just kind of observing about creatively too, that I like about the culture is it, there's kind of an openness in a lot of ways. Like there isn't like, mm-hmm. there isn't this very rigid, like, here's our mission. Here's our goal. We are about this. There's kind of a, quite a bit of a, of, of an openness to exploration. Like if you were to say, oh, creatively does this, like you, you kind of really can't totally define it because you actually, you do do the ads and stuff, but you do like other, you give yourself room to be like, well, let's also do something else that has absolutely nothing to do with this other thing that we're doing. You know, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I think the reason I joined most ad agencies or production companies are like a graphic designer who realized there's a cap how much he can make. So he'd open an ad agency or, mm-hmm. you know, a cameraman did the same thing. So we hired some people around him and now he's at a production company. And Jay, who's the principal here, was an entrepreneur first. And I, I'd say like, I think I like it because we just kind of, our mission statement, it doesn't exist. And it's, we just are kind of approaching the world with kind of a humble curiosity. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> how we make videos, we have kind of a framework, but not a formula because we're always yeah. testing it, you know? And then we're like, well, what if we tried this? What if we tried this? And when we don't have paying work, the key is to focus on what if we tried this. And Jay is fantastic at, at helping people identify their strengths. And then we're like, well, what if we tried this? So, you know, we're an agency, but we also own a pillow company and we own <laughs> part of a, um, a men's dress, a, a menswear line and a, a, a protein snack. And um, we're working on a, a short virtual reality horror film right now. <laughs> Um, because we happen to have a VR camera from, uh, you know, another project. And he's like, well, you know, during, during the quarantine, you know, our sales funnel just kind of changed. We've, for, we've been fortunate to be very busy. And, but, you know, some of our writers are like, who are really talented as horror writers, are like, hey, nobody's ever done this before. But I've, we've noticed as we've been playing with this VR camera that these are some of the constraints. So let's write a story using these constraints as Those our constraints. Strengths. Hey, by the way, just, just as, as an aside, I should mention, you talk about like humility and curiosity. Like I literally, I've, so I've been trying to do this podcast for the last little bit and I like wrote, have two notes I've written down that it's like, okay, here's how you need to pro- approach the podcast. And the, the two like qualities are humility and curiosity. So I should actually literally have a paper next to me that uh-huh. has, has those two things written on it. So anyway, just an interesting uh, synchronicity there about... <laughs> Yeah. How you approach well, things. Well, I think, I think when we're talking about humility, you know, there's lots of, it, it's, it's one of those words that's unfortunate because it's a simple word and a lot of people attach different meanings to it, you know? So it's got all mm-hmm. this connotative weight, but I think in our context, I think you're talking about the same thing that I am, which is simply the fact is like, is to say, well, I might be wrong. Yeah, you know, I'm, exactly. I'm curious. So I'm learning about stuff, but I might be wrong. So what do you have to say about it? And we let, so with our, one of the things that makes us different is we take, when we release a video out into the world, we dig into the data metrics and and traditionally performance marketers like, oh, this worked or it didn't. 
but we look at each video on a second by second basis and we like, oh, this joke that I loved, nobody really likes it. We can see our watch our retention curves or we'll ask like, well, why did people drop away? Did that offend them or is it boring? You know, mm -hmm. and then let's well, let's try cutting it out. Let's try cutting it a different way. And then we test it, and look at the data. And for me, that is bringing both sides of my brain together. And I think that's the unique thing that makes me really professionally satisfied right now is I get into data and statistics, which is mm -hmm. that's you know, a cool. lot of people don't look at. But I, I look at that and then we apply it creatively. Like, well, what did we learn? Why did this perform better here? What what caused that? And then look for a creative solution where, uh, you know, a lot of the performance marketing, they just kind of, kept, well, this didn't work, so we reject it and find something else. But I'm mm. getting to ask those why questions. And I think that also drove me in my earlier work with Travis and Kinetto Pictures was we did a lot of documentary work. And I absolutely love that because I'd be just like, oh, I get to research this project, but not for a research paper. It's just like learn a lot about it so you can become an expert or see who is the expert and then interview them, ask mm -hmm. them with curiosity and like, what's that like? What's that about? What's Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I feel like just having just having a job where you can have the opportunity to, to be curious, I think is is a very big big part of of staying engaged. I mean, at least for you, I'm sure it's probably the case for other people. Um, but I think that that I don't know how much that's an attitude or that's like the actual sh shape of the job that allows for curiosity. Um, yeah, well, because I, I think in I I think in order to be curious, you also have to be a little bit okay with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and not knowing how, how a story is going to end. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you want to have that humble part that I might be wrong here. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this is right, but I'm going to keep exploring and knowing that there's not necessarily an end in mind for that. So a lot of topics that I've studied for documentaries or a project, I still am super curious. I, I think you're the, I mean, you and I worked on a history fair project in, Oh Yeah. Absolutely. You were in eighth and ninth grade on the Cambodian genocide, like very yeah. heavy stuff for, um, but junior I was high, like, junior high school students. <laughs> yeah. For junior high school students. And, and we were like pasting picture, like piles of skulls on our board and, you know, yeah. and talking about the things they would do there. But I've been, had a chance to visit Cambodia and like something about Cambodia comes up and my ears perk. And I, and I still like that history fair project was done a long time ago. But it I'm really still... affects affects who I am still today. I mean, it was oh, just yeah. one of these things. I think we heard Dad talking about it at a camp out. Someone was talking about the killing fields. Yeah. Someone's like Cambodian genocide, and it's like Cambodian genocide. I've never heard of this, and we just like set off and just like discovered this whole history that we had had no knowledge about. You know? Yeah, and and I think it was also like you know the the holocaust is is so important but it it just looms large culturally over american yeah uh culture and i think it looms so large we we are unaware of the other instances that are very similar and that that to me is fascinating how many yeah. other times really horrible things have happened in different settings and and those commonalities and what drives people i'm really interested in what makes people good mm -hmm. but i'm also curious about what makes people how good people, because I, I, you know, I have a deep belief that most people in the world are good and yeah. have a little bit of desire for selfishness and greed and darkness and not darkness, but it's just like, there's some selfish needs that they have and certain combinations can trigger all the selfishness at the same time and cause horrible things to happen. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm fascinated now by, 
you know, murder is in this incredibly rare thing, even in America mm-hmm. where we talk about gun culture and, and all the deaths from guns. But like murder is, is actually a very, very rare thing, even in the United States as a, a fairly a relatively high murder rate compared to anywhere else in the world. So murder is this incredibly rare thing. You know, even in the United States, it has, you know, more murders per capita than a lot of other countries. Not the mm-hmm. most. You know, Brazil is higher probably. and But it's like 90% of our entertainment is about, it's like, murder, murder shows, detective shows. Yeah. The longest-running show on television is The Simpsons. And next to that is Law & Order SVU, which isn't just about murder. It's, like, about the most heinous, like, yeah. twisted, darkest forms of murder. And, and uh, you could say, like, well, it's about the good side, and they're raising awareness of this horrible thing. And, and yeah, you know, and the shows are really preachy, but... It is interesting that our ent- entertainments have has turned so much that way, and I think that's made also people crave, you know, some of the shows like Parks and Rec and and um, The Good Place mm-hmm. have like, and, and The Great British Bake Off have like this goodness in them. That this feels very very refreshing. Not to say I'm not, yeah. and I don't say that to criticize those other shows, but I just think it's interesting. It's um, like you you do. There's kind of that counterbalance of of what people resonate with. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I would say, I think one of the, one of the interesting things thinking about the reality of, of the fact that genocide or, you know, the Holocaust was not a single event, but it's, it's kind of this reoccurring, um, you know, vibration mm-hmm. throughout human history that there's just these moments where horrific things like the Holocaust happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that the Germans, that some sort of magic happened when the Germans became Nazis, that they all became like. Um, evil hand ringers, you know, is, is mm-hmm. kind of naive. And by seeing this kind of reincurrence of, of genocide over and over the centuries, like we should be, again, talking about humble humility, we should be pretty humble in realizing that like we have the same programming, you know, like yeah. it's, we have to, we have to get much better understanding the conditions that bring about something like uh, what happened in, you know, World War II or in Cambodia yeah, um, or the Spanish Revolution, or yeah, you know, in in Guatemala, or in um, you know, or with the cartels now in, in Mexico, yeah. what they're doing, and, and how life can get cheapened under certain conditions. Yeah, um, yeah, we have we you have know, the and, capacity for the great capacity to do like horrific things. You know, <laughs> that's all part of yeah, it's in us. Uh, you know, and that. And that was that was Willie. And I remember in high school, definitely, I was obsessed with like mm-hmm. Lord of the Flies and Heart of Darkness and stuff. And I recently read a story. I don't know if you saw it going around about the real life Lord of Flies that happened. I saw that. Oh yeah, yeah, I read that too. Escaped, yeah, yeah. The kids that escaped from the school in Tonga and 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 got were stranded on an island for like a year and a half, but they became like best of friends and had great rules. And yeah. you know, one of them broke his legs and they fixed it and they raised chickens and learned to start fires. And it's like we don't have to yeah like it's not i don't think it's a, a binary thing but what is it that causes it when it does happen yeah um so that's and, and i think i see that in art because i i am definitely drawn to some some really dark art i you know you remember when we went to the prado mm-hmm. um and there's goya's dark uh dark witch uh, i can't remember what they're called like the, his nightmare period or oh whatever, i'm totally fascinated after. by that stuff there's a yeah after sorry go ahead his, he, you know he did he did a super realistic stuff yeah yeah and then after the Spanish Revolution after he did like the May third eighteen oh eight and you know the atrocities of war which is to my mind like one of the most powerful pieces of oil painting in the world 
but you know, he went a little crazy after that. You know, I have to say when I was, when I was, I was in an Arbor a few years ago for, uh, the kids read comics. It's now called a two calf, uh, comic mm-hmm. festival. And I had a chance to go mm-hmm. to university of Michigan had within their special collections, all of these Goya prints from that time period. I wish you could have been there. Oh, well, it was just yeah. page after page oh. of all of these The first of all, the compositions are just like beautiful, but they're also some pretty dark stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, well, even like a simple, I mean, it's almost modernist, you know, a century in it before, but in that, you know, that he has like paintings like the witch's Sabbath that are like, like evil cackling to sort of evil. But to me, one of the darkest one is he's got this one called the drowning dog. Mm. And it's like these two fields of color on an oblique angle, you know, and a dog's head's just peeking up over it. And it is just such like the sense of foreboding doom. And the fact that he was able to do it with just a couple of strong lines of color, you know, for me that, that, that like, um, communicates a greater sense of impending doom than Picasso's Guernica, you know, so, which is, um, I have this, this question then this is, I mean, I think it was really interesting. I think we yeah. both are attracted to kind of some heavy, heavy subject matter, but I also, mm-hmm. you are, are one of the most like loving, thoughtful people that I know. And so w- when you think about that, how do you kind of reconcile this like attraction to dark things and, and the fact that, you care very much about goodness, you know, and things like that. Um, I think it, for me, I think some of the darkness has to do with like the empathy and and having gone through those dark times Mm -hmm. and it's, Oh, there's something I recognize there that I felt within me, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why it resonates with me. Like the drowning dog, like, Oh yeah, I felt, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like I've never been able to articulate that feeling mm-hmm. in words, but that painting just did it. Yeah, you know, like like that that dog is struggling and it's an uphill battle up that wave, and the title tells you the ending as well. You know, yeah. I definitely felt that, and so so something that tells your story back to you in a way, but it's also connects you with humanity. So I think that's definitely part of it. But I also look at the type of darkness that I'm drawn drawn to. And there is a strong element of hope in it. Mm. Um, if we're talking about movies, I'm not, I, I'm like not at all interested in like the torture porn sorts of like the saw mm-hmm. or, um, you know, like the snuff films or the, the hills have eyes and that, that have this really dim view of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love, I, you know, we've talked about this before, how I love zombie movies. Like I love zombie movies and I like a good ghost story, mm-hmm. but ultimately what both of those genres about are zombies are movies are about, you know, and zombie movies aren't all about zombies. Like Zulu is a good example of a zombie movie. That's not a zombie movie. Yeah. Right. It's about, or assault on precinct. 13. There's, there's siege, it's siege about, movies, right? That's one of my favorite genres yeah. is the siege siege genre. <laughs> yeah. The, the Alamo. Yeah. I still think it's a zombie movie though. Yeah. It is about, you don't get inside the other characters' heads at all. Yeah. Um, it is this unthinking horde, hopeless odds against you. So then what? Yeah. So what are you going to do? You got to hold out. And I think I, and I feel not, but not only hold out, you like, you work for survival. Yeah. You're like, and this is also Lord of the Rings too. It's yeah. like all the odds are against us. There's this very narrow chance 
that we will survive and win. So we'll put all our money on that. Yeah. And I think as somebody who struggled on depression, like that's the theme, you know, mm-hmm. that's the theme for my life. Yeah. You know, when you're like, oh, things suck. I don't know that life is ever going to get better. Yeah. But just maybe. There's maybe a chance. You know, there's might be a chance. You're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, then ghost stories, I think that my favorite ones are ultimately about being haunted. And then there's a resolution that comes through coming to terms with things and that almost like recontextualizes. It's like, here's this thing that's scary, but the resolution recontext. I mean, sixth sense is kind of a very classic version of that. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, uh, the changeling, not the, not the Angelina Jolie one, but the George C. Scott one, mm. you know, I think that's also great. And it's interesting, which is a very psychological concept. It's just like, Oh, once you can reframe the suffering, it will haunt you no more. Yeah. You know, and that's, which is funny. I think this is the first time I've articulated that, but I think that's very much the theme as you're trying to figure out life Mm. is once I can understand this suffering and even connect, you know, sometimes it's connecting with somebody. So you're not, you know, but it also makes the movie, the ring terrifying because you think they've, you know, (laughs) at the end of that movie, you think, Oh, she's let it out. He's like, why would you do that? Yeah. Which is also true. Some, some traumas that, you know, you unleash. There's there's some truth there. You've had this breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think cause I was, we were just talking about like, I don't, I don't get into like the exorcisms and the the satanic stuff. I wanted kind of to, to talk a little bit more about, um, the process of depression and facing depression, uh, as, Mm-hmm. As you've you faced it, this is one thing I think we have in common. Most of of anyone in our family, and we've both been you know comparing notes on it for a long time and and working through it. And um, I think we're probably both in, in in the best place we've ever been um, is in in relationship to that. Um, I'm kind of interested in in I guess how that's going for you lately. Um, I think it'd be very interesting to, for you to talk mm-hmm. about kind of what has worked for you um because it's it's we've we have kind of taken these very different approaches but it seems like they're they're both kind of working pretty well you know yeah um i think so we have uh there's five boys Mm -hmm. and then our parents and our family and i think most of the people in our family other than you and i suffer from chronic optimism (laughs) Um, and I think even you and I have that sometimes, but yeah. you know, they're, they're preternaturally happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though our dad was a doctor, I think he just didn't understand depression, yeah. you know? And I think he came into my room once after college, I had moved back home for a little bit and it was like one in the afternoon and I couldn't get out of bed. And he's like, Damien, I think maybe you have depression, <laughs> which I'd been like telling him for like years. And he got me in and I, and I tried a medication and had a horror, well, no, I, I tried a medication and I woke up the next morning and they're not supposed to work this fat, but I woke up the next morning and I thought, I want to get out of bed. I've never felt that before. <laughs> like I've never felt the desire. I've always had to cause I had to be somewhere, Yeah. but never felt like, Oh, let, let's get up and do something. Mm-hmm. Like, this is weird. Is this like, do people feel like this? Um, but then I started like immediately started getting more anxious and you know, so hearing about people's journeys with all their different, um, side effects, isn't that that interesting. I, I think I did most of my work in therapy, mm-hmm. like one-on-one talk therapy. I've done some group therapy. That's been really great. I feel like it's really important, uh, to talk about getting help, what, whatever help it is. 
um, because I believe that so much more of the population um, suffers from it and is unwilling to talk about it or is ashamed. Like you wouldn't get ashamed about any other health condition. Yeah, just just normalizing but, it. The fact that it's just, we can just talk about it openly, you know. Yeah, and I think for me it was like, hey, listen, I'm not good at sports, and I was ashamed as a kid about that, and I was ashamed about plenty of things. Um, but I thought, oh, I've got this brain that can do cool things. And so feeling like that that brain was broken mm-hmm. was added a different, you know, and I think there's a spiritual element, like, oh, is my spirit broken as, you know, as well? And thinking about, you know, religious things like in a concrete way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that was part of it. So that, that's why I like to talk about it. And I think definitely the world is, is talking about things a little bit more. So I feel like one-on-one talk therapy has helped me make the most progress in being self-aware and self-conscious and working towards my health. Um, you know, I've learned some things that are good and healthy for me, like getting some sunshine and sunshine and eating a little bit healthy and a little bit of exercise, but those won't fix the problem. Mm. Those are like, Hey, you know, stabilize your leg if it's broken. Yeah. Uh, or, or like, you know, doing some, I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a long-term those, solution. Those, those are like, they make you better kind yeah. of in the moment, which is, is good. It's like, okay, it stabilizes the condition kind of like you're saying, but there are, you have to have some yeah. sort of long-term addressing of yeah. the underlying well, issues. Because I, th- I think one thing that's pernicious about the disease, you and I have talked about recently about how some of our um, symptoms are so, so different. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that's pernicious about the disease is that, I don't know of any other disease that when you're in the throes of it makes you run away from anything that can make it better. Yeah. You know, Yeah. it's like uh, when I'm feeling horrible, I do not want to, I don't want to leave my basement. I just want to sit and watch shows mm-hmm. and zone out and feel horrible or escape, you know, just escape and stuff. I don't want to eat well. I don't want to, ex- I, don't, I definitely don't want to see people mm-hmm. even though I feel better when I do. So yes. So therapy was, has been really good, but I think lately, uh, finding a good psychiatrist. My very first experience when I was first diagnosed was with a psychiatrist who tried something and I had a bad experience and I went off at cold turkey and had a really, really bad reaction. And I felt like he didn't tell me and it was just, it was not a good relationship. Mm. And my current um, psychiatrist, I don't talk about anything. She's like, what are you doing? You know, with these symptoms, how's this, this, this and this going, you know? And it's like a 15 minute chat. Mm -hmm. And it turns out what I needed was a very small dose of like four different things. Yeah. Um, and by taking those, you know, I had tried each one of those like in larger doses and I was like, well, I'm getting this, but I'm not getting this, you know? And, and it was always this trade off. I'm like, well, I have enough coping mechanisms. I just hate dealing with the side effects from all these medications. So I think it, the fact that it coincided with being in a better professional environment where I'm using my specific skills better, that sets me up for success, but it turns out I've also got a little bit of anxiety and a little bit of ADD and a little bit of um, depression. And, you know, you add some severe acid reflux on top of that, and you can be pretty miserable in a hurry. Yeah. And, but being able to sleep 20% better, being able to focus 20% more, you know, what happens with the depression is because you sabotage yourself so much, you make yourself miserable on top of your depression, you know? And I always say like depression is very accurate, but it's magnitude is way off, mm. you know, like the things that you find to be sad about or to make you feel horrible 
I was like, oh, this relationship is going nowhere. You just like you're turning the volume way up me. on those I, things. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I, I think it's a it's definitely a question of magnitude. There's several studies that show that actually people that while they're suffering from depression have much more accurate perceptions of things. Hmm. Like that's like counting. And yeah, um, uh, I wish I had the links. To these I, I've read them, the, the studies before, but they, they, they have can have an accurate representation of current events and how things are going. Um, but I have found that definitely blow those things out of proportion. Like you always, you never, you know, will never be able to, you know, yeah. Oh, I'm not happy things like I'm sad right now, but that doesn't mean I will never be able to be happy. But that's, those are the kind of the conclusions you come to. You know, that's kind of interesting to me that you say they kind of perceive things more accurately because I've had I've mm-hmm. I've had this kind of running theory since I've started um, meditation, and th- there's a lot to confirm this. Mm-hmm. But basically, that that people that with depression uh, mm-hmm. kind of are naturally a little bit better at doing meditation, and you know the the, per- mm-hmm. the particular type of meditation that I do is is basically like it's a almost narrating mindfulness. It's called noting. So it's like you're paying attention. To what's going on but you uh-huh. you like are labeling as it as you're as it's happening but it's very very much about mm-hmm. that process of of just being aware and being of what's happening mm-hmm. and and being perceiving what's happening um so it's interesting that there could be studies that show that um that meditation uh or sorry that that the depression uh kind of makes you how did you say it that it, it that it like makes you see things more accurately or whatever um, yeah, and it, yeah. it, it oh, may just be an yeah. issue of like decoupling the perception from whatever judgments or other things you attach or your reactions to this yeah. stuff. Is it might be kind learning of not to. Yeah, for me, it was like learning not to catastrophize. Mm-hmm. Like, it is the conclusion that your, your data is accurate, but your conclusions way off. Mm-hmm. Like, if I could go back to my laboratory days, like, no, you're, you're seeing the right data. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see, you see two dots on this curve, but you're extrapolating a you know, uh, a parabolic curve from here when it could be linear Hmm. and, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's generally, so I think I, I, I don't do meditation the way you do, Hmm. but I've done some mindfulness work and I, I find mindfulness in art now actually, because I can, the process, and it's less different types of art. I do a lot more lettering and a lot more, a different type of doodling, but in the process I can watch my thoughts and say like, Oh, yeah, I'm a little depressed right now. I'm seeing because the conclusions I'm coming to are big hmm. instead of little. You know, that's interesting. Um, um, you know, I had an argument or things fell off with my wife, and it's like this relationship is doomed. Rather than, oh, yeah, we had an argument. Yeah, you know. Um, how do you feel like uh, at this point in your life? You kind of mentioned before that there was there was a period where. It was it was hard for you to to understand how to interpret your spirituality in relation to depression. Um, how do you kind of think about that mm-hmm. now? About how your spirituality might relate to, um, yeah, that that kind of way of seeing the world or feeling the world. Uh, you know, this was a really a spiritual, religious moment for me, and it, it was definitely a discreet, acute moment. I'd had a falling out with a uh, with a church leader, hmm. and I was kind of just grumbling on it a lot, and was really frustrated a lot about it. And, and Dad actually said, well, "Why don't you tell him how you feel?" And 
which, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. Like I, I've now become very good at confronting people I have negative feelings with without it becoming a confrontation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. But you know what? 99% goes, it goes well. well. 99% yeah. I leave saying that's, that wasn't the way I expected it to go. Mm-hmm. And that relationship is stronger because of it. That's awesome. You know? And so I, I wrote this letter just talking about how I had been hurt or felt hurt, you know, and put it in his box. And like within 10 minutes, like I'd left the building and I was like, well, he'll get to that this week. Cause I know he's got a lot of stuff. It was a, a stake president. And that's kind of, uh, the equivalent of a, of a bishop in a, in a Catholic, you know, they're over several dioceses or several wards, yeah. um, several congregations, right? They... Several congregations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I had worked directly under him and, and anyway, he immediately called me and said, can I come over right now? Mm. You know? And then I found I was able to express my frustrations with him. And then he just started asking me about some of the things I'd been going through. And, and, um, this was the year we had lost, we had lost mom hmm. and like, you remember this, this is the worst year of my life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, like uh, I broke both arms. I, you know, this girl that I thought I was finally in love with, like dumped me and mom was dealing with cancer all year, but from a distance. So we couldn't be with her. And I mean, I remember just, like I got in a car accident that year and that didn't make it onto my top 10 <laughs> list of worst things that happened to me that year. Right. And it was just a miserable year. And, um, Anyway, through this conversation, he said to me, he's like, I wonder why God trusted you with this, and I wonder what he expects you to do with it. And I don't know. I wouldn't say it sounds trite, but it it really, partially it was because of the, the whole conversation and in context. I really internalized that, and I think since then I've kind of looked at Depression is my superpower. Hmm. Um, and to say, okay, what does that give me to the world? You know? Yeah. And I think it's given me my lo- the way I feel about art and music. And I think hopefully how I relate to people and how I seek empathy, I think it, um, you know, I, I don't try to offer sympathy and I don't assume to know what people are going through because I know that their emotional reaction could be so different. And I think this is also why this is why everybody hates commercials right now, mm-hmm. you know, because every commercial is like, oh, we don't want to sound tone deaf. It's like, we know you're going through a hard time. It's like, you have no idea what he's doing, <laughs> you know. In my neighborhood alone, I've been talking to neighbors and like some are overworked and some are underworked and some have lost the jobs and some have too much work and some have are worried about the disease and some just want to get out of their house and some love that how much time they've had with their kids and some don't want to see their kids anymore. And like everybody's going through something completely different. And so like a commercial trying to empathize is just a waste of time. It's kind of pat. It's kind of like there's this obligatory, you know, acknowledgement that we need to act like we care, you know. Yeah. And I think I've learned this about empathy, too. I was going to write something about the dangers of empathy. I've seen some quote unquote empathetic people like I know I know you're really scared right now. I know you're really like and which is the worst way to exercise empathy is to put a pin, nobody wants to be pinned down. Mm. Nobody wants to see an, an impersonation of themselves yeah. and say like, oh, I know, I know this is exactly who you are. Yeah. I, this is exactly what you're feeling. But what my therapist, like, honestly, like one of the best things that she offered in our therapeutic relationship is like surprise and wonder at my emotion. <laughs> like, oh, like she had this way of just being like, oh, oh, wow. 
wow oh oh you're that's int- what's that about without like making oh, you shame ashamed that? of it though like no no but like it was let's say i'm not doing any good impersonation of her yeah because it would be just this um, more like interest like curiosity like oh that's interesting would, yeah cu- yeah but also like this surprise like oh wow you're really going through something yeah you know yeah what's that like and, and it was like it was coupled with this curiosity, mm. you know, and because I knew she was invested not in, she didn't want a certain outcome from my life, but she was really curious and fascinated about my brain. Yeah. You know, do you ever, do you ever, and, do you ever feel like you and, 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 do and, that to yourself? And she was, is always, that something you, you like end up doing for yourself as well now? Do you ever stop and say like, Oh, that's interesting. Like what has she modeled yeah, that so, for you in a so certain way? Not enough. I, I don't think I, I do it enough. Mm. Some of it is what I talk to about, like when I can realize, like, oh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really going, like, I really think this is the end of the world right now, and it's not. Like, that's why, why am I? Oh, it must be that thing, yeah. you know, that I got. I must be swinging right now, you know, with that sweet chariot. <laughs> and um, so, so yeah, you know, I probably would get more of it if I if I spent some time meditation, meditating, hmm. um, I, I'm impatient with my own mind though. And I think, <laughs> I often, you know, that's the real point of this podcast I had a bad exp- is just to convince well, you to start meditating. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is an in joke between us. Cause you know, we we're trying to convert each other. Um, but uh, I know you're, I know we're not, but we, we <laughs> both like sharing what really works for us. Yeah, you know? absolutely. We both like sharing things that are important to us. Um, yeah, but like my definitely my way of soothing is like seeking escape and seeking it through story, um, which often comes with art and beauty. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so I I think that was great that she could approach that su- surprise and then we'd kind of go on this journey together and discover what, what that was all about, and that was really great. But that didn't do it. That wasn't sufficient alone. And so I think what for me what's worked is having an ability and a framework to understand my mind and, and emotions and where I'm going, having a curiosity about myself um, coupled with medication that came through that self-discovery. That's like mm-hmm. this, this, this that I thought was this is actually this, you know? And so the medication doesn't work alone until you can figure out what exactly is going on and then what you can know the small parts that you need to fix instead of the big thing you need to fix. Yeah. I, I kind of, I'm a real believer. You kind of mentioned this a little bit like, Oh, 20%, this helps 20% here. This helps 20% here. I'm a big believer that, especially when addressing, addressing, um, depression, that the, Mm. the things that work the best work even better, like in combination, you know? So if, if you find, if you have like a medication that's working great for you, and you can go see a therapist, you know, and you're in like a healthy relationship and you're making good decisions. Like those things have this really like compounding effect on each other that can be very, very healthy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so I was gonna say that, that, you know, the other two things that are non-therapeutic that are very therapeutic in my health is, is, and and my doctor had, um, my, you know, family practice doctor had several filmmakers that he serves and he's like listen you need a job Um, that's gonna help you on your journey it's like yeah i do need that that external structure of somebody expecting me to be somewhere yeah that's been really helpful and then being married to somebody like maylee who laughs at me yeah and with me yeah i get both but i've 
I've been learning and it's hard for me because I do have pride about myself. Yeah. Like everybody wants to think that they're awesome. S- secretly believe that I'm pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I also doubt it, but like learning to laugh at myself has been, and, and, and Maylee is really good at that. At laughing at and, you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. funny. You no, just, actually, and, just, and it was hard just for, it you was like really mentioning that I can picture and I can, I know the difference between both of those. I know when she's laughing at you and I know when she's laughing like because you you said something funny, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you know, you and I used to talk about like, oh, I don't want to marry somebody who's like, oh, that's so random. Yeah. You know, like, I want somebody that gets my humor and she gets it sometimes and sometimes like, you're weird. Yeah. And then I can laugh at myself like, yeah, I am. Yeah. You know? And sometimes she teases me and I don't take it very well. But I remember there's this, uh, it was a great Atlantic article monthly about the Harvard longitudinal, it's a very famous oh, longitudinal yeah. study. Yeah, very important. Yeah, the hundred year study. Some good stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's what's interesting is that different research institutes had taken it over and had a different aim for it. But the key was they had stayed with the same people for this you know, like a hundred years, mm-hmm. and so they had all this data. And for me, one of the biggest things was they found like one of the most important things in health outcomes was somebody who's willing to laugh at themselves, hmm. like having a good sense. And for a long time, I thought a good sense of humor means somebody who makes the best jokes. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot of people that make great jokes, um, but like somebody with a good sense of humor, somebody you want to be around is somebody who laughs and will, especially willing to laugh at themselves. Mm-hmm. And I definitely get to those, you know, I think when I'm in the low period when you're like, oh, I just dropped this bowl of ice cream. I'm never going to be good at anything. <laughs> and then to be able to laugh at that thought, yeah. you know, Cause it's, it's like, the exact opposite of exactly what's causing the depression, right? You're making, you're yeah. making small of things rather than making, making things big. Yeah. And as entertaining as I try to be or as charismatic as I try to be or, you know, creative or whatever, people like being around Maylee more because she laughs, laughs with them and at them, you know? Like, she's such a great audience and, like, wherever she goes, people love her yeah. because of that. Yeah. And and so it's like – and I found out at this job, actually, like, in the first six months, the editors were, like, had a, had a running, like, contest who could make Damien laugh because – like my reaction to humor is like, oh man, that's a really good joke. But you wouldn't actually you know? laugh. And it's cerebral. Yeah. And I, I've been able to laugh more. And the best thing also is, is having a son. Yeah. Like, like he's got the worst sense of humor, but <laughs> it is always surprising. Like his solution, his, you know, and it's that surprise. And like, he makes me laugh more each day than, in, you know, than any other comedian. Um, and not when he's trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. He's trying to be funny. He's a horrible comedian. But when he's when he's being serious, you know, I just so I have I have like one other thing I'm I'm interested to to talk about, and this is something that could really be a longer conversation. So maybe we'll just we'll just touch on this a little bit. Um, but okay. um, you know, I feel like I, I would really like to talk with you more about spirituality. Um, because mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of, uh, diverged in, in certain ways. I'm, I'm not a member of the LDS church anymore. Um, you are. And, um, mm-hmm. I think maybe that, that causes a little bit of, of, a um, uh, gives us pause sometimes in sharing stuff more openly, maybe about like what we believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something maybe mm-hmm. we can some, maybe talk about that a little bit, uh, more in depth, but yeah. I guess to kind of connect it to what we're currently talking about, I'm interested I guess, and how, how you see your experience with depression and how, how you've kind of been working with it, like how that interfaces with your spirituality 
And I guess mm-hmm. to kind of set that up, I, I remember having a discussion with you, and it's, it's probably quite a long time ago now that we've had this discussion and that you expressed this, but I remember you expressing something along the lines of like frustration that you feel like um, not really know if, knowing if you've had those types of spiritual experiences that you wanted where you felt like uh, God was, was um, speaking to you in some way or, or you felt like uh, – you had kind of a clear sense of inspiration or a revelation about something. Um, and I don't know, I wonder if that's related to depression, if that's changed kind of how you feel about that relationship with spirituality and, and the relationship with God. Um, uh, yeah, I mm-hmm. guess I'll let you go mm-hmm. on that. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think we dance around some of the spiritual discussions. I think it's also, it's largely out of like a respect. Mm. Like, I don't want you to think I'm converting you. Yeah. And I want to like, I always want to acknowledge the elephant in the room mm-hmm. and I want to respect where you are and also respect that I don't know where you are always, you know. Yeah. And, but I've tried to be open and I think in this discussion say, this is exactly what I believe about things mm-hmm. and, and not kind of address it because we've talked about We've talked about talking about this before. Yeah, I um, think it's and it's, I think it's something we can still. We, I'm not I'm not totally happy with where we are at it. I guess that's one thing I I would want to say. Like <laughs> I feel like I want to I want yeah. to like have more of a clear view of of what you believe. And I understand why you're concerned about it. I don't know. I don't uh-huh. think I'd say I think you're concerned about offending me. I think you're concerned that you're going to sound preachy, you know, or something like that. Yeah. But I I definitely yeah. want to have a better sense of like you know, what matters to you, how you see the world. Um, and I think I have a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. I have assumptions about what you believe and then you'll say things sometimes and I'll just realize I'm, I'm way off, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, sometimes I say th- things about what I believe and I, it turns out I'm way off. Yeah. You know, I sure. think we're evolving beasts in some ways. Um, this is what I believe about depression and religion. Mm. Um, I believe that depression brings about a certain anhedonia, mm-hmm. you know, which is the, the the process of not being able to feel certain things, certain emotions, and I think it affects your. I I believe in a tangible and concrete um, veracity to this to to the spiritual world. Like there is a, uh, a li- I, I believe in religion literally. Mm-hmm in some ways and in some ways metaphorically, but, but a lot of the things I believe, I do believe in a literal, um, sense of a spirit being a literal thing, you know, and, um, I don't know your audience or, you know, but, but that's, that's where I am religiously. Like I believe in, in some things, literally, uh, some religious things quite literally. Um, and I have, but I believe that, that, this set of beliefs that I have doesn't have the keys. It has the keys to understanding a lot about life and the world hmm. and things belong to the metaphysical world, but I don't believe that it has the keys. I, I believe it no more has the keys to fix my depression than it does to, to fix a bad gallbladder, you know, okay. which is to say, I do believe a miracle is possible. You know, mm-hmm. I do believe in literal miracles and in healings and things like that. But I don't think you just pray it away. Like you, I don't think you, I don't believe in praying away a broken bone or a clogged artery, you know, 
I do believe in praying for those people, and I believe that God intervenes in our life mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, but I think just regular religious. I, so I guess to say, like, yeah, being healed from depression, I would view as a mir- miracle in the same way, like someone being raised from the dead, which I wouldn't expect mm-hmm. it to be every day, and 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 quotidian, in in and a natural result of religious pra- practice. So definitely when I'm swinging low, that's also another side effect I notice. I know it's like, oh, I don't get very much out of my religious experience. But I also know that out of my religious experience comes some of my deepest sense of meaning and connection to something divine. And I have had those glimpses uh, of something uh, outside of myself that is powerful and, and loving and that has some control that I don't entirely understand. Um, and so that has made my religious practice sometimes mm-hmm. very frustrating, you know, where I might go for years without having those experiences that I want. But when I do taste them, they're very fulfilling and they feel like, yeah, this is who I am. And, you know, one of my challenges in life that I think is also unique in, in the LDS world is I was single for a long time and it was, you know, we believe in these eternal families and I really wanted that more than anything else. And so I experienced like, well, yeah, I don't want to be alone. So, I'll, you know, I, I was dating and then you start saying, well, maybe I need to explore other things and dating people of different faiths. And I was dating a, a, on a date with a, a, a beautiful, smart, intelligent, funny woman who we shared a lot in common with. And she was explaining how she really enjoyed, she was, didn't want to be a member of the, of, of the LDS church anymore. And she was, she really liked the Quakers and what they were doing. And she's like, I just realized that I didn't want to be Mormon. And it's like the moment she said that, I was like, oh, but I really do. <laughs> like, this is the thing I really want out of my life. I think part of faith is a will to believe. And, and, and I guess that could be twisted to say that, like, oh, faith, you're just convincing yourself mm-hmm. of that. But there's this part of me that, like, connected to who I am, mm-hmm. I believe, that wants this, um, you know, but I also have those experiences that I look back that I don't, that I feel like I would, I, the only way to work around the gymnastics I'd have to do are harder than anything else to convince myself that those mm-hmm. were real things. Um, in my life, um, I think one of my earliest is, is when, uh, you weren't on the ranch at the time, but when our uncle died in an accident on the ranch, and I had almost a tangible experience with, um, after he passed, feeling he was in the room to comfort me and to let me know that, because they, they, you know, they took him off to the hospital in, in an ambulance. And I went to that little white barn, you know, and, and prayed. And it, and it was like one of my first feelings and tangible glimpses beyond, like, the physical things that I'd experienced. And I didn't, you know, I was, what, 13, 14 at the time and thinking, I had no idea what was going on with him but this distinct expression that he's left his body, he's in the room, and he stopped by to let me know he's going to be okay. And, you know, it wasn't wasn't an auditory or visual experience, but I knew, and it, that was, and, you know, like that, that was one of my first formative experiences like that. But then I look back, like, you and I both had very distinctly different experiences on the ranch, even though many of the days we were both there together hmm. at the same time, you know, and, and I think we, I think that's also illustrative of the world and how we walk. Yeah. It, you know, you know, I would just, um, first of all, I've, I've, I've never heard that story before. And so, um, like it's, it's really, really cool to hear that. I'm sorry, but you were going to, you're going to say something. I'll let you finish mm-hmm. before I. No, I, you know, and I just think that I've also, you know, 
I think emotionally you and I are the most similar mm. of the brothers, like to each other. I'm, and, uh, you know, the other brother, I, I share, we share these intersection points with each of our brothers. Um, but I think specifically emotionally you and I have that, this, this certain connection. But I also realized, remember the essay you wrote about your ranch experience? And I was like, it was beautiful and poignant and I recognized it. But at the same time, it was completely foreign Wasn't to my experience. experience there. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting that, uh, um, one of the things that's been interesting about kind of the experiences I've had with meditation over the last, it's been almost a year now, um, is um, much more of an openness to kind of non-rational experience and, and ways of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. why we experience those things um, is, is not something I'm, I'm, I totally know. But it seems like very much mm-hmm. a universal part of of human experience, you know. Like if I were to if I were to place yeah. bets on like on religion versus secular secularism in the future of humanity, like I'm going to put my money on religion because that just seems like it's it's stuff that just is is continuing to happen, you know. Um, I just know so many people yeah. that still that's that's still such a valid and important way of of looking at the world. Um, and they've heard all the same arguments I have. I know so, there's so many people that are intelligent, bright, um, you know, analytical people. They see all the same evidence I do and they're still like, yeah, but you know what? Religion works for me, you know? And so, um, yeah. And, and there's, there's definitely a third path right now, which is a lot of people that don't see it as a literal thing, but they say like, oh, but this is a, a good way to sure. live your life. You know, I'm like, oh, this is a good, this is a good moral code. And. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm, and it's not like the, that experience on the ranch is like, oh, that's where my, um, my personal religious conviction came from. But I think that was definitely a spiritual awakening to something beyond, you know, the physical, you know, an opening to this, this metaphysical and it, it, you know, there was continued experiences that let, that, that honed in on why, what, which specific beliefs I have and why those are, but I I do think that's this formative one that was one of the most powerful and strong. And I'm like, I can't really, I can't work around that yeah. One mentally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am definitely coming to a point in my, my life where I, I, you know, I don't think I was ever maybe a little bit, I, I, I can, I can sound pretty judgmental and opinionated uh, when, when I'm starting to think through certain things. <laughs> but um, for me deciding to, to leave Mormonism was more a sense of what I wasn't getting from it anymore, if that makes sense. You know, I had, I had had experiences mm-hmm. that were enough for me at, at a certain point where I was like, yeah. And I actually, I went through, and this, this is one area where I don't think I really understood where, where you were at, because I went through a period, almost going back to my mission, I really started when I came back from my mission. So in my early 20s, where I stopped seeing a lot of what the church was about is literal. And it, I, I was went through a very long period where it was very metaphorical to me. And I was like, I don't know if any of this stuff is true, but I feel good being here, you know? Um, and that carried me for, for quite yeah. a while until it just wasn't anymore. There came to a point where I was just like, I, I'm not feeling the same things that I used to. I'm not getting out of it what I used to. And at that point, then it's like, okay, here's this cost. I'm paying this big cost. And I'm not getting a return on this cost that I'm paying. Um, mm-hmm, and so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I definitely hit that mm-hmm. same point. 
not where I was, but I was, it, it was from a different angle. It was like, I believe in this literally, and it's my largest hmm. source of pain. You know, I remember saying this specifically to a bishop, you know, this is when I was single, you know, and it's like, I, these are the things that I want and they're the things that my faith teaches me and I can't hmm. have them. And it is my largest source of pain and frustration. But I think part of it was this understanding and it was through a mindful practice of realizing like, oh, when I'm suffering from this ailment, you know, if I've slept on my leg, I can't feel my toes. And when I'm suffering from de depression, I can't feel yeah. my spirit as well, you know. And and sometimes that has lasted for years for me. And, you know, there there is a, a, a piece of scripture that says the spirit of God will not always dwell with man. And it seems contrary to some of our, the teachings of our youth, but I've just been kind of okay with it. Like, okay, I'm, I'm walking through this valley right now. Um, and I don't know, I have an uneasy okayness mm -hmm. with that. But I think both of us, like our missions were um, formative for us in not the ways that we expected. I think we both had big expectations for that experience. And it, it didn't, you know, for me, that, that was an experience that kind of, um, I don't want to, I, I want to say the word haunted, but I don't feel like that is, that's, you know, but I carried some negative baggage from that experience. And I also had some beautiful experiences, but I focused on the negative so much. But this is also why I'm resistant to meditation for, sorry, this oh, is this a sidetrack. But um, I journaled a lot hmm. on my mission. And I found, like, the journaling led me to dwell on those negative feelings that were so big and the, hmm. you know, those perceptions that were real. But I, and I was like, oh, I missed out on these experiences because my journaling was was meditative and mindful and writing and I was writing beautifully yeah. about misery and, and, and being frustrated at not getting the thing that I want. And by articulating it over and over again, was just digging that hole. You know, deeper. that's, that's actually like a very legitimate, first of all, I think it's very interesting. Um, obviously I've been talking a lot more, more about meditation over the last year, but the perception that it, it does feel like I might be kind of proselyting about it is, is kind of interesting. I've tried not to, to, come across that way no i don't think you are i don't think you are but i was kind of making a joke <laughs> about the way some people in our family yeah, have said but that i before, will say you know but you're definitely you're definitely you're having significant experiences yeah, and you're sharing them but with us, so. i what i think is, I, I do think you're onto something and, and i do know that for some people at, at this that with experiencing depression that it, it can actually be kind of like contra counterindicated because you are suddenly just like let's let's pay attention to how i feel and then you're feeling all these difficult emotions, right? And it's not just enough. To, and it's really not just enough just to pay attention. And that's one of the subtle things that it doesn't get communicated as well. Is that you also you also have to bring to it a certain attitude and cultivating your the attitude like loving attitude. And that's like a whole other practice. Um, well, yeah, and there's there's stories about people with mental illness and, and mindful or, or, and meditation leading you into madness. And that's not what I'm scared of. I, I remember. Oh yeah. And that's a very, that's a very, very real thing yeah. as well. well so. we, you know, we had yeah. a, a foster daughter situation and she had some psychological ch challenges and we really talked about like, Hey, meditation, we can't do meditation with her because, and we actually listened to some meditations, which is a different thing than what you're talking about. But, um, mm. Uh, we Hiram likes to listen to him as he goes to sleep and Maylee does some and you know we do some but mindfulness I found is kind of my my medium ground where I do find like certain mindful tasks and that can be a mindful way of cooking or a mindful way of drawing 
where it is the task mm-hmm. allows me to get in this headspace and process things in a certain way. But it's it, for me, it's not pure meditation because if I'm staring into my brain, that's still some things that are a little scary for me in there. But it can be driving with the radio off. Can be a very mindful experience. I remember once I drove from LA to San Francisco on the PCH, and it was a very mindful drive and great for me to to reach certain conclusions. And you had the radio off the whole time. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, that's that's that yeah. counts. So I mean, it's not like eyes closed. <laughs> I mean, like I'm very. It's active, you know. I'm turning and, and cruising and observing and looking and sometimes talking yeah. and to myself or sometimes, you know, talking. Uh, to deity or you know whatever but you know so I I find I'm kind of finding that in mindful experience Um, and sometimes it's like ironically sometimes it's going back to a coloring book and doing some coloring I think that's a great mindful can be a really great mindful activity which is why it's had a a surge you know in the last five years yeah I think it's very interesting the place that like drawing and doodling and like calligraphy and coloring plays in, in your life Cause I, I, I'm going through a phase right now where I, I like don't even want to like do any drawing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but for you, it really seemed, and I think that's because I've, I have like, um, projected so much of this ambition and like, I have to do this thing. And there's so much pressure and tension involved mm-hmm. with it, um, that I'm still trying to like sort mm-hmm. through and being able to do it and just enjoy it. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see how it is like this meditative thing for you that you can do. Um, and just pay attention to the experience. Um, yeah, but it's also it's so. also not paying attention because it doesn't have to be good, and I don't have to accomplish anything, you know. So sure. I was working on a signature. This is like for a client, and just like, hey, your signature line on your emails would be really great if it's the two of you and you have different personalities and your signatures. And can I develop that for you? You know, and just filling pages with with lines is very satisfying, uh-huh. and it can be like watching TV, and it's like your hands wandering, I find that those mindful experiences ironically come in church. And I have a bookshelf full of sketchbooks that no one has ever looked into, you know? I honestly, you sketch more than I do, honestly. I think you have well, a very natural proclivity I have for, and I haven't, like, for doing that since type Hiram of work. Along, this is my son. Um, for the audience out there. Uh, since I have my son, like, I, it used to be like, that's how I, you know, especially when I was single, sitting in church, you know, I would do volumes of sketches, but, you know, I'll go for months without picking up a sketchbook and then I'll discover it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I definitely find there's the spiritual community, the, the, I think we've talked about this before, the Weechul Indians in kind of in the, um, Puerto Vallarta area, uh, they do sand paintings. And they sell them hmm. after they've done it, but it's a, it's this religious, you know, and, and they will, t- they'll take a, a substance, usually like a, a mushroom or something, you know, a psycho, psycho sort of thing and, and have this religious experience and do these sand paintings and they're, they're gorgeous and spiritual and they sell them. And I was talking to the art dealer. I was like, well, isn't it like selling a religious artifact for them? And they're like, no, the, the, the holy experience is the creation of the piece. After that, it's just sand. Hmm. Like it doesn't matter, but it's the creation of yeah. the piece. And I think I kind of feel that way. Like some pieces I'm kind of like, I kind of wish somebody like, you know, dug this or wanted this piece or, or something of mine, you know, and I, you know, Adrian has a piece that I drew for him. He commissioned me to do something, but you know, and I've thought about art before, um, but definitely I get something out of the process of filling pages with lines. Um, 
I think I think that's a pretty like that's like a pretty rare place to get to if you can really value the making of the work over like the the finished thing and be able to kind of detach that from ambition. Mm-hmm. That's a there's not a lot of people I think that are that are successfully able to do yep. that. Yeah, but so. I think the, definitely the quality of the art suffers. I mean, it's not, it's like I, <laughs> things are not well composed. I'm not necessarily making progress, but I'm doing, in the art, but I'm doing, it's doing something for me. So it, maybe it's selfish or maybe, it, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's yeah, a fine. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I've, um, well, hey, let's, uh, I, I think it's it's probably a good yeah, time to, to wrap it up. Two probably good enough. need to get going. Yeah, this is actually this is the longest one we've done so far. So, yeah. but um, there's just a lot of stuff I wanted to chat with you, and I felt like we could go longer. But it would be good to to continue at a time when, uh, you know, maybe we've got more energy to to go at yeah. it again. I made so. the, the editors in this room have been kind of quiet, so I've, I could have this conversation, and I don't mind being open with it. But yeah, yeah, let's let's talk again sometime. We'll do it again. All, All right, right, thanks, brother. Love you. Bye. All right, bye bye. Love you. You've been listening to How to Be an Artist. To support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA.